0: Well, good morning. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at John chapter 1 this morning, and as you're turning there, let me just remind you of what we are doing in this little Christmas series that we begin today. We're taking a pause from our uh, walk through the Gospel of Matthew to spend uh, four weeks now here in John chapter 1. We're not going to look at every verse or go through it um, straight in a line. But what I'd like to do is to um, consider together a theology of Christmas, we might say. Uh, often when we turn to uh, the Christmas story, we go to Matthew's Gospel or, or Luke's Gospel where we get the narrative of the birth of Christ, but as we'll see this morning, John brings us a step back further into the very person of Christ, into the work of Christ. And so what we'll be doing today is uh, part one of considering the person of Christ, we'll be considering Christ's divinity this morning. Next Sunday we'll be considering His humanity from from John chapter 1 as well. On Christmas morning, we'll be really just unpacking and meditating upon John the Baptist's statement, Behold the Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sins of the world. And then on New Year's Day, we'll we'll end this little series by considering what Christ has done in making us children of God. So that's a bit of a road map of where we're going. I'm assuming by now you guys have found John chapter 1. So let me read the first uh, five verses, which we'll be looking at today. and the darkness has not overcome it. This ends the reading of God's Word given to bless us. Let's seek His blessing in our time in the Scriptures this morning. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank You for this opportunity that we have every Lord's Day to hear the story of the Gospel. We thank You for the the, the context of Christmas, that it, it heightens our our interest and, and our awareness of, of these vital matters, of the questions of, of who you are and of what you have come to do. And I pray now, Lord, that as we come to your word, that we would come with humility. We would not stand as judges and critics over the scriptures, but that we would come as humble servants, humble worshipers, and that you would fill our hearts with wonder, and our lips with praise, as we consider today who Jesus is. I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, um, NPR had uh, an article-slash-interview uh, with a very revealing title. The, the, the title was, If Jesus Never Called Himself God, How Did He Become One? That's called a loaded question, by the way. Um, the interview is is with uh, a gentleman named Bart Ehrman. Some of you may be familiar with his work. Um, Ehrman has become famous uh, because he he grew up in the church, uh, was converted as an evangelical Christian in his teens, studied at Moody and at Wheaton, uh, went on to Princeton, and during his studies of the New Testament at Princeton, came to reject the authority of Scripture, and within a number of years came to reject the idea of Christianity altogether. So he is a New Testament scholar who identifies himself as an agnostic and an atheist. So predictably, whenever uh, the news wants to interview someone about the New Testament, they, they turn to uh, to Bart Ehrman. And in this, in this interview, Ehrman is, is making the argument that uh, Jesus and the New Testament doesn't really think of Christ as being God, that that's something that later Christians imposed back on Jesus, that Jesus really thought of himself, and historically speaking, merely was a, a, a Jewish teacher, um, and his followers then kind of expanded the story, expanded the mythos, and that's where Christianity comes from. Now, is that the case? Some people believe that it is, and, and some will, will follow that argument, exactly where Ehrman does, to a rejection of Christianity, to a rejection of the church, to a rejection of the authority of scriptures. Others will accept this claim. They'll say, well, yes, Jesus was probably just a really good man, a gifted teacher, a a fine example. Um, and the church later went on to worship Him, but we don't really have to get too worried about that. We can, we can reject the idea that Jesus is God and still learn a lot from Jesus. Well, today I, I want us to, to consider those claims. I want us to consider those positions. I want us to, to ask, what does the Bible itself actually teach? What does the Bible teach about who Jesus is? What did Jesus believe about Himself? And secondly, I want us to see that 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 is a question that we need to answer from God's Word because it's vitally important whether or not Jesus is God. We can't just um, accept the idea that Jesus is a mere man and act like nothing in the Christian life or nothing in the church would change. And so today I want us to spend some time in these opening verses of the Gospel of John to see two things together. I want to make an argument today. First, that, that the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. This is not something that developed later. This is not something that Constantine invented or something like that. If you've read Dan Brown, you can ignore everything you've read. Uh, the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. Jesus taught that He was God. That's the first thing we want to see together today from the Scriptures. And then secondly, we want to see critically that the Bible teaches that we need Jesus to be God. So we're going to see that this is true from the Scriptures and that it matters as well. So let's, let's dive in. The Bible teaches that Jesus is God. Uh, Before we start walking through some of these opening verses, let me just uh, address two preliminary matters. Uh, First, uh, as we begin this gospel, you will notice, as as I mentioned, that John begins in a very different way than the other gospel writers. Uh, John's gospel was probably the, the, the last of the gospels to be written, and so he is... Speaking to a church that already has Matthew and Mark and Luke, uh, gospels which tell about the life and ministry of Christ. And so what John is doing is, 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 is giving us insights and information that, uh, the other gospel writers, uh, address in some degree, but don't go into in as much depth. You remember that that, that John is described as the the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had this close and intimate relationship with Christ in his earthly ministry. And now, uh, more at the end of his life, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to have an insight into Jesus and his ministry. And in these opening 18 verses, he gives us a kind of theological account of Jesus Christ. He brings us into the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? What is his relationship to God? What is his relationship to humanity? And and from that, he helps us to see the work of Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And so, as we are reading through these verses, I I want you to, to be aware of the fact that when John talks about the Word, if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll see very clearly that he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about The son of God. And so as we talk about the word this morning, keep that in mind. John is addressing the very questions that we are asking. Who is Jesus? Is he God? What does that mean? The second thing I want to just mention as we begin is that there's a bit of a paradox for us as we come to these questions and as we come to this passage. There's a sense in which the things we're going to be talking about today and the things we're going to be talking about next Sunday as well are the basics of the Christian life. It does not get any more fundamental than this. Who is Jesus? Who is God? What do we believe the Scriptures to teach about these things? These are foundational starting truths for the Christian. And yet... (laughs) There's another sense in which, as we step into these questions, we are plunging into the depths. We are dealing with the deep things of God. What does it mean that Jesus is fully God and fully man? What is the mystery of the incarnation? What does the Bible teach us? About the Trinity and and the ways in which the the members of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity, interact with and relate to one another. There is nothing more complex, nothing more involved than than these questions. So, just to pull an example from our own lives, this is a, a little bit like dealing with the question of time. What is time? Well, that's something that when you start kindergarten, they teach you about time. Here's a clock. Here's how you read it. Here's what here's what time is, right? But as you get older and you, you probe deeper, what you find is philosophers and scientists and others who, who deal with the question of time kind of end up scratching their heads. They say, well, we can talk about how to measure time and, and why it's so important in different ways, but what actually is it? the greatest minds say well we're we're not really sure we're we bump up against our limitations in different ways that's that's what we might experience a little bit today as we talk about these these issues of the incarnation and of the trinity so i, I what i want to just put in front of us is this that as we walk through some of these things there's a lot we could say about all of them Uh, but we're not going to um, explore every connection and thread. My hope is that this sermon will spark questions for you and give you lots of things to talk about uh, over your lunch today and things that we can discuss together as well. But I want us to stay fairly focused on that question. What does the Bible teach us about the Word? What does it teach us about Jesus and His relationship to God? And I think there are at least four things that we can see from these verses. The first thing I want us to see is that the Word is equal in eternity with God. The Word is equal in eternity with God. Look at verses 1 and especially verse 2. "...in the beginning was the Word." And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is the first and fundamental proof of the divinity of Jesus Christ. That, that all of us have a beginning. Everything around us had a beginning. There was a point when we were created. There was when we were not. But when we come to the, the Word, when we come to, to the Son of God, we're dealing with something else altogether. He's not in the category of creation. He's not something that at some point had a beginning. You go back to the most basic of beginnings. You go back to the, the very first thing, the Word was already there. The Word was in the beginning, with God. The Son is spoken of here as having the same eternal existence as God the Father Himself has. Again, there are depths there to explore, but just notice that point that the Word is equal in eternity with God. But, but John goes a layer deeper, doesn't he, in these verses? He, he presents the Son, he presents the Word, Jesus, as being not only equal in eternity with God, co-eternal, but also as being equal in substance with God. Listen again to John 1.1. This is one of the most famous verses in the Bible, which can always make it a little tricky for us because we're so used to hearing it, we, can, we cannot pay attention, but... Pay attention to what he says about the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Coeternal. co-eternal. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Understanding those things, relating them together, again, will open up oceans of theology for us, but, but just notice what we are seeing here at a a foundational level, that there is a a sense in which John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, having walked with Jesus, having heard his teaching, having imbibed Jesus' understanding of who he is, says of Jesus, says of the Word, that he was God. This is one of the, the clearest proofs that we can point to that the Bible teaches that Jesus is God because the Word is Jesus and the Word was God. Now we'll make some distinctions here in a moment that are important for us to hear, but don't, don't miss the force of this. With this one verse, John is laying a foundation for everything else that we need to say and everything else that we need to know about the person of Jesus Christ. That when we come to this man, we're not coming to a mere man. We are coming to one who was in the beginning. He is eternal. We're coming to one who was with God and indeed who was God. The Word is equal in eternity with God. The Word is also equal in substance with God. They share in the same substance, the same divine nature. Thirdly, the Word is equal in power with God. So equal in eternity, equal in substance, equal now in power with God As well. This is what verse three especially explores. John says of the word, all things were made through him. And without him, in case you thought there was another category, was not anything made that was made. That's an all-encompassing statement if ever there was one. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Notice here several things. First, because of the way that John describes this, the Son, the Word, categorically cannot have been made. This is one of the things that is missed by uh, Mormons, for example, in their teaching about Jesus Christ, and really they are echoing the ancient heresy of Arianism, which sprung up in the early church. Uh, these are groups that would look at Jesus and say, oh yes, he's not, he's not just a man, clearly. He's something exalted. He's something great. There may even be a, a sense of the divine about him, and yet the formula of Arius was, there was when he was not. In other words, there was a time before Christ. And while Christ may have had some important role to play in the creation of things, he was himself created. He was the first thing that God created, the highest thing that God created, the greatest thing that God created. He has a special relationship with God, but, but he's not eternal as God was. He doesn't share in the substance of God. Does that fit with what John is telling us here? The disciple who leaned on Jesus' breast? No, he says, All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Which means that Jesus Himself, the Word, the Son, was not something that was made. Everything was made through Him. John answers, in advance, the errors which would spring up and which always seem to come back around. John is rejecting this idea that we can put Jesus in some middle category where He's more than us but less than God. No. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And John is taking us back to creation. He's actually already done that, hasn't he? By opening his Gospels with that word, in the beginning. Where do your minds go, kids, when you hear that phrase? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, John is drawing on that, that opening of the Bible, that opening of Genesis, and says, in the beginning also was the Word. We read in Genesis chapter 1 of God making all things by His Word. John now brings us again behind the curtain to say, not only what is that word, but who is that word? That that word is God's son. That word is the second person of the Trinity. It's Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, just a few moments ago? That all things were made in him and through him and are held together by him. Jesus, then, is not just an exalted man. He's not just an angel or some exalted creature. He has power equal with God. And one of God's fundamental works, the work of creation, we read here, was done by Jesus Christ. And so if we are to separate Christ from God in some way, we do violence both to God and to Christ. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't stand. We must recognize that the Word is equal in eternity with God, the Word is equal in substance with God, and the Word is equal in power with God. Finally, we see that the Word is equal in glory with God, sharing He's eternal, they share in the same substance, and He is equal in power and glory with God. Look at verse 14. We'll be focusing in on this verse next week. But I want you to hear it now. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So as we run through this, this testimony of John about who Jesus is, what do we see? Well, we see unequivocally, even just from this one passage, that the Bible teaches that the Word is God. Jesus is the Son of God. We can kind of summarize the the arguments that John has been making uh, using the words of the Westminster Larger Catechism. I find this question and answer very helpful. In question 11 of the Larger Catechism, they, they ask, how does it appear, how do we know that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father? Right. If you had read the Old Testament as the Jews had done, you would clearly have seen there is one God who is our Father. And then you open the pages of the New Testament and you read everywhere both of that God and Father, but also of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit who was poured out from God. Well, who are these persons? How do we understand them? How do we see from the scriptures that, that they are equal with the Father? Well, here's how the Catechism answers. I think this is very helpful. It says, the scriptures manifest that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father by ascribing unto them such names, attributes, works, and worship as are proper to God only. Four evidences. We can look at the names that they are given. They are given and they share in the divine names. One example of this would be, if you look at the opening of Mark's Gospel, he, he draws a quotation from Malachi, which is clearly speaking of Yahweh. It's speaking of God. And in Mark's Gospel, he says, this is speaking about Jesus Christ. That happens all the time where a prophecy from the Old Testament that's speaking of Yahweh is applied to the person and work of Jesus Christ. The, the names of God are ascribed both to the, fa- the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and so they share in that equal divinity. Secondly, there are attributes that they have, as we have seen today. The Word is spoken of as being Eternal as having ultimate creative power, ultimate divine glory. How could He be anything less than divine? Thirdly, that, that He shares in the works, as we have seen. Using His power in the work of creation, that's not something that a creature could do, by definition. The Creator must be divine. Everything else is separated from it. And finally, that worship that we see both the Son and the Spirit receiving and demanding and do worship which is proper only to God. And so even with this run-through survey, we can see that the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. Now let me just make one final distinction or category here as we move along. We've talked a lot about the word being equal with God. Equal in eternity, equal in substance, equal in power, equal in glory. However, I don't want you to mishear that line of argument. The Bible does not teach that equality equals identity. In other words... The Son being equal with God in all of these ways doesn't mean that the Son is the Father, and the Father is the Spirit, and the Spirit is the Father, and so on and so forth. Some people have taught that. It's called modalism. It's the idea that there's just one God, and He kind of takes different shapes and forms as He needs to. That is not what the Bible teaches. I was in a Presbytery meeting once, and uh, Robert Letham, a great Reformed theologian, was uh, saying something, I think there was a, a, a licensure exam or something, and he, he made a kind of throwaway comment that has stuck with me ever since. He said, so much of Christian theology comes down to understanding the way in which things are distinct but inseparable. The way in which things are distinct but inseparable. This is one of those areas where we need to recognize that the Son, the Word, is distinct from God the Father in some ways. And yet, they are inseparable. We don't chop them up and separate them out and say that we have three gods or three forms of God or something like that. And and I think that's what John is wanting us to get in the way that he describes the Word. The Word was with God. There's a distinction. There's the Word and there's God. Keep it distinct, and yet the Word was God there's an inseparableness there as well now again unfolding that in all its depth and detail is something that we should spend a lifetime wrestling with but but but, but hear what John wants us to hear about who Jesus is now I hope at this point that you can you can agree that the Bible does teach that Jesus is God, but you may be grappling with another question in the back of your mind. Okay, this is interesting. Going through these Christological, you know, heresies and getting these theological distinctions, that's, that, that's, that's interesting, but, but what are we supposed to do with all of this theology? And is this just kind of abstract theologizing, interesting for those who want to study it, but uh, not really of, of much importance to our day-to-day life? What, what, what makes all of this matter? Well, first off, let me just push back against that instinct. It's an instinct I feel as well. Uh, as, as Americans in particular, we are, we are very prone to pragmatism. And uh, we, we tend to think that if, if there's not something that directly impacts me right here, right now, then it's not important at all. That's a dangerous way to approach life. Husbands, if you, interact with your wife and she's telling you things about who she is and what she feels and you're thinking, I, I don't see the connection. What am I supposed to do out of this? Um, let's stop this conversation. It's not going to go very well. Uh, if you love someone, you want to know them. You want to understand them. Uh, learning even things that uh, don't have a direct action item attached to them are actually vital to being in a real relationship. And, and that's true of us with God as well. In other words, theology. Rightly understanding God, rightly hearing and receiving what he is telling us about himself is something worth doing. Period. End of story. Always. And so we need to, 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 to be challenged, I think, by that as pragmatists. Maybe especially at this time of year, we get very busy. And sometimes when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about God, we can slip into a, a kind of sentimentalism. But, but this is a time when, when we want to step into the deep things of God. We want to grapple with who Jesus is, what He's revealed about Himself. He doesn't tell us things that don't matter. He doesn't tell us things that are important. They are given for our good and to move us and motivate us to worship and to glory in Him. And so that is an important thing for us to keep in mind. However, this is an issue that does have real, practical, immediate impact and significance for us. Because the Bible not only teaches us that Jesus is God, it also teaches us that we need Jesus to be God. And so I want to run through just a few of the reasons why it is essential that we embrace and believe and delight in the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. If you want to unpack this more, you can go look at uh, Westminster Larger Catechism, question 38, and all the scriptures that it is uh, drawing together to get a good summary of this. But I want to just give you a a few reasons why we need Jesus to be God. The first reason is this. If Jesus is not God, then His death cannot pay for your sins. John talks here about the light and, and the darkness. There's a couple of significances to that. One is, he's drawing our minds again back to Genesis. In the beginning, there was darkness. The first thing that God said was, let there be light. But here's the pattern of the story of creation. There was darkness, and then there was light, and then when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? Well, in a sense, there's a reversion back to darkness. And John is saying, there's now in that second darkness coming a second light. There's something about our life outside of Christ, after the fall, that is marked and characterized by darkness. And, and the Bible describes that as, as our sin. Sin that is a breaking of God's law, sin that is a breaking of our relationship with God, and sin that therefore distorts all of our relationships with each other and everything else in creation. All that is broken, all that is is, is, is wrong, all that is flawed and fallen and f- and finite in this world flows from the sin that Adam and Eve committed and the sins that you and I add to that sin. And so we are born as children of darkness. We're born into a a, a broken and compromised world. We need a deliverer. We need someone to, to pay the penalty for our sin, to keep the law that Adam broke and that we break to make us right with God. And Jesus is that one, that one who can come and keep the law perfectly, pay the penalty for our sin, restore us to right relationship with God. But just think for a moment, if Jesus is not God, could he still do that? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Could a mere man do all that needs to be done to restore us? To redeem us. To be a light in the darkness. Well, if you have a low view of the problem, you might say, yeah, I think, I think, I think a man could do that. Because if the problem is merely that we're not quite sure what the best way is to live life, and we need someone to inspire us and give us a good example to know how to be the best version of ourselves, then Jesus could be a mere man. He could be a teacher. He could be like Gandhi or anyone else that gathers a following and inspires admiration and motivates us to to be good, kind, nice people. And that's where some people go with this. The problem is that that doesn't grapple with the problem. It doesn't actually deal with the fact that our need is not just for a little bit of direction or a little bit of information or a little bit of inspiration. We need someone to make us right with God in every sense, in every way. And so what is needed is someone who first and foremost can keep the law perfectly. Something that we know no fallen human can do. Secondly, we know that We need someone who can endure the wrath of God that is due for our sins. We have already accumulated a debt, the Bible says. It's a debt that needs to be paid by enduring the wrath of God. How could a mere man ever withstand the wrath of God, taking it upon himself? That's not something that you can do. That's not something that I can do. Only one who is divine can take the wrath of the divine. And and thirdly, fundamentally, this is true both of His humanity and His divinity, what we need, the Bible says, is a mediator, one who can stand between, one who can, as Job put it, put put one hand on God's shoulder and one hand on our shoulder, as it were. Well, what man, what mere man would be qualified to be the go-between between God and man in that sense? to fulfill the terms of the covenant that have been broken. You need someone who, who has a, a share in divinity and in humanity. One or the other is not enough. And so we find that what we need is that, that perfect mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so if Jesus is not God, then His death cannot pay for your sins. And therefore His life... His birth that we celebrate now is is not even something worth celebrating. It's just the birth of one more person amongst billions. But if what the Bible says is true, that Jesus is God, then his birth is worthy of all of the excitement and attention and worship that we give it and more. If Jesus is not God, then his death cannot pay for your sins. If Jesus is God, then his death has paid for your sins. Secondly, if Jesus is not God, then his life cannot create a new humanity. You see, when Jesus came into the world, his mission, his goal, his calling was to pay for our sins. But that's not all that he was setting out to do. Sometimes people talk about the gospel as if that's it. It's, 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 it's like coming up to someone and saying, hey, by the way, I don't know if you knew this or not, um, but you actually took out a, a debt that you forgot about and you owed Fifty billion dollars, but good news: um, someone stepped in and, and paid it. And they go, "Oh, okay, wow. Well, that was a roller coaster ride, uh, but I'm, I'm glad to hear that, and I can move on with life, I guess, and make sure I don't take out any more debts." But that's not all that Jesus came to do, though. He does pay the debt. He does deal with sin. He does uh, overcome our, our past opposition. But His work, as we read in Colossians, is a reconciling work, a renewing work. He's not just dealing with something dark from our past so that we can be free to live our lives as we want in the future. He has come to make a new future. It's what we've been reading all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, isn't it? What is Jesus focused on in his ministry and in his work? It's the coming of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus has come to do. Not only to deal with the problems of Adam, but to be a new Adam to mark the beginning of a new humanity. That's why Colossians speaks of Christ as the firstborn of creation. Not because he was himself created. Colossians makes it clear he wasn't. John makes it clear he wasn't created. But he is marking the beginning of a new creation. A new creation, a new humanity, a new family that you and I are welcomed into and called to be part of. That's what Jesus is coming to do, to transfer us, as Colossians 1 says, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Is that something that a mere man could do? Do we just need a political ruler? Do we just need a brilliant charismatic preacher or theologian or a great philosopher? No. The world has seen many great and powerful men live and die and often be forgotten. I think it was Samuel Johnson who quipped, the graveyards are filled with indispensable men. It's true. Each of us will die one day, no matter how powerful we are, no matter how successful we are. Our work matters, but it it can't transform the cosmos It can't deal with the fundamental gap between God and man. It can't deal with the problem of sin or inaugurate a new creation, a new humanity. The only one who can bring about a new creation is the Creator, is God Himself. And in Jesus, that's exactly what we have. We have God Himself entering into His creation to make a new creation taking on humanity to make a new humanity. If Jesus is not God, then His life cannot create that new humanity. But because Jesus is God, His life has created and is bringing a new humanity, a new creation. Finally, if Jesus is not God, then His person is not worthy of our worship. There are some, again, who say, well, perhaps Jesus didn't think of himself as God. Maybe that was something that later Christians kind of kind of made up. But, I mean, it doesn't really matter. There's still so much to be inspired by, so much to be encouraged about as we look at Jesus. And so it's good, uh, at Christmas especially, to, to have these cards and these services and sing the old songs. But friends, if Jesus is not God... When we sing the hymns that we sing at Christmas, we are committing blasphemy, nothing less. We are spitting in the face of the one true God. Because they are ascribing to Him, as the Catechism says, worship that is proper to God only. Names and attributes and works that belong only to the one true God. So this is not the kind of question that we can be agnostics on. It's not an agree-to-disagree kind of issue. As we said, in one sense, for all the intricacy, for all the detail, for all the depth, this is something basic. It's something foundational. This is where we start in the Christian life. And if Jesus is God, as John has said, then He is worthy of our worship. And that's really John's point with everything that he has said so far, with everything that he says in his gospel. He's not just saying, oh, here's something interesting for, for those of you who like theology. Here's the eternity of Christ and the divinity of Christ, and those are things that you can talk about and argue about if you'd like. No, that's not what John is saying. He's beginning his gospel here, and he ends his gospel here as well. So I'd like to close by looking at how John brings his gospel to a close in John chapter 20. And I want you to see how he is bookending his gospel, the final gospel given, with this truth of Christ's divinity and with what he wants us to do in light of that truth. Look at John chapter 20, verse 28. The scene here is where Jesus, after his death, after his resurrection, is appearing to his disciples, and Thomas, who had doubted that Christ was raised, is now standing face to face with the risen Christ. And here's what Thomas says, verse 28. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, He does not rebuke him, which is something that every angel does when he is treated as if he's divine. They say, no, no, don't fear me, fear God. But when Jesus hears these words, my Lord and my God, hears what he says. He says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus thought of himself as God. He knew he was divine. And he was excited to see his disciples recognize that truth and in fact calls on all who would be his disciples, even those who would come long after, that even though they would not see Christ in the flesh, yet they would believe like those who had seen him in the flesh. And John goes on to say, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So what should our response be to these things? First, consider what you believe. If you have not believed what the Bible teaches about Jesus, then believe today that Jesus is the Son of God. And if you do believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then worship Him as the Son of God, as is His due. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that we have confidence from Your Word that we can speak of You that way, as our Lord, as our Savior, as our God. And so, Lord, I pray that every heart here today, every knee here today would bow and every tongue would be able to confess as Thomas did, my Lord and my God. We thank you that your word is clear where we are so often confused and that we see this truth of your divinity and the centrality of that truth for our lives. We pray that you would fill our hearts now with both belief and with worship. In Jesus' name, amen.